Friday, June 11th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Peter Bergman on the road for Radio Free Oz, and I'm at the Creep Air Force Base in the Doom Room. That's one level under the Situation Room at the DOD MGM Grand somewhere in Nevada. And with me is Colonel Bob Nutz, drone commander and showrunner here. Is that right, Colonel Nutz? Laugh at my name and I'll have you drone. Uh-huh. Ha ha, just kidding, soldier. I'm not a soldier. Everyone's a soldier when our country's at war. Yeah, right. Well, okay, what are we looking at here on these two big video monitors? Well, I went over there, that's AFPAC. AFPAC? Afghanistan, Pakistan, it's all one big show now. Well, can we listen in, Colonel? Sure, that's Kiowa 84, it's hovering down the Kabul, the freaking nowhere highway. No, I'm not seeing any sand jockeys down there. Bob, look, uh, let's get back to this uh, this waiver here and the free up and ship papers. Uh, we really have to work this out. The yeah. bonus? What about the bonus? Well, it isn't strictly for signing the PTS waiver. I know you can get sick, but free up and ship. Look at graph uh, 3024. Yeah, it yeah. says uh, fly times, times cultural relations, times, you know, we can make a fortune. Can I talk to him? For sure. Say, soldiers, can you tell the RFO audience just what you're watching down there on the road? We are hunting rabbits. Um, Detergents. Insurgents. Happy hunting, boys. Now, over there, Mr. Bretman, you can watch uh, Mexeriz. Wow, hi, Def. I can see the slats in the border fence. Yeah, they can get through those slats. Well, how? Blow a hole in them. Oh, oh look at this. They can just ramp up over the damn thing with one of their high-rider SUVs. Wow, there's 50 people coming over the fence. What do you guys do now? We drone them. Huh? Now, we're not allowed to drag them. We just drone them. We drone them into the hands of the... Here they come, the Hintville National Guard. Yeah, there they are, just breveted right there to the big fence. That sounds painful. Hanging your body across the border is the least you can do for your country. Yeah, well, okay. Well, thanks for the tour, Colonel. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, what's that? Captain, I got 12 possible insurgents at the Shake Shack down there at Click 343. I'm confirming. I'm confirming. Are they armed? Well, I can't tell if those are burkas or rocket launchers. All right. We have a crowd of presumed terrorist militant insurgent aliens. Requesting right. orders. Yeah. Requesting orders. Ah, hellfire. Show them who's boss. This is Peter Bergman on the road for RFO, and I'm out of here. It's Friday. It's the weekend coming up, and that means it's best of the best. Let's put them to the test. This is a piece by Representative Jan Schakowsky, a Democratic congresswoman from Illinois that appeared in the Huffington Post. A fabulous blog run, again, by another fabulous woman. As of 10.06 on Sunday, May 30th, we will have spent $1 trillion in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now that, to my mind, is an unusual tribute to Memorial Day. A trillion dollars is a baffling amount of money. If you write it out, use 12 zeros. Even after serving in Congress for over a decade, uh, Representative Skakowski says, I, like most Americans, still have a hard time wrapping my head around sums like this. This month, we mark the seventh anniversary of President Bush's declaration of mission accomplished in Iraq. Yeah, I remember that sign behind him on the aircraft carrier, mission accomplished. Give me a break. Yet, five American soldiers have been killed there in May alone. Iraqis went to the polls nearly three months ago, but the political system remains so fractured that no party has been able to piece together a coalition. There are some indications that sectarian violence is again on the rise. Yep. The only clear winner of the Iraq war is Iran. 
Their mortal enemy, Saddam Hussein, was taken out and fellow Shiites are in charge. uh, Iran has been emboldened to the point of threatening the stability of the region and the world with its growing nuclear capability. Well, Jan, I don't necessarily agree with you on that, but certainly it's an honest argument. And then there's Afghanistan, which, after nearly a decade of war, represents the longest continuous U.S. military engagement ever. Even the nonpartisan Congressional Research Service recently declared the situation in Afghanistan was a deteriorating security situation and no comprehensive political outcome yet in sight. Now, that's dismal. And the U.S. military just suffered its 1,000th casualty in Afghanistan on Friday, May 28th. Trillions of dollars worth of war are thousands casually. That doesn't include, of course, all the civilians that have been taken out. Oh, my God. So the real question is, what have we bought for a trillion dollars? Are we safer? As our troops and treasure are still locked down in Iraq and Afghanistan, terrorists are training, recruiting, and organizing in Somalia, Yemen, and a dozen of other places around the world. While it appears that we have made significant progress in weakening al-Qaeda's network, we have increasing concerns about homegrown terrorists. Isn't it time to invest in a different strategy? Now, I've been doing a lot of thinking about the nexus between the low status of women and the presence of instability, violence, and terrorism. It is simply a fact that the countries in which women are least empowered are the most violent. Could it be that policymakers and defense experts have overlooked a tool that is staring us right in the face? It's in the eyes of women sometimes masked by a burqa, sometimes scarred with acid, sometimes tear-stained from the grief of losing a husband or a child to war. It's these women who are often fiercely determined to stop the killing and provide a secure environment for their families. Does it even make sense for half of the human race to play only a minor role in countries now plagued by war and violence? Now, the data indisputably proves the case that when investments are made in women, Communities are more stable, they're healthier, and less violent. The principal tools, which just happen to be far less expensive than the weapons and manpower of war, are the education of girls and economic empowerment of women. We already have some positive experience that we can build upon, where the U.S. military and our NATO allies have made a conscious effort to reach out to local women in a culturally sensitive way. They have seen the benefits of utilizing the unique abilities of these women. A Canadian-led provincial reconstruction team in Kandahar met regularly with local women leaders who notified NATO of local corruption and security threats and also conveyed their priorities for improving life in their communities. The U.S. Marines, well, they have found that using this female engagement teams to establish dialogue and collaboration with Afghan women has helped to build rapport between Americans and Afghans, as well as providing critical intelligence that might otherwise have been missed. And this is a toughie. There was an article in another one of the magazines where here's this uh, young American woman Marine trying to, you know, sip tea and talk with the Afghan women. I mean, the cultural divide is Grand Canyon-like. Now, so... On Sunday, um, that was Sunday the 30th, we hit the $1 trillion mark. But on Memorial Day, we will honor all those men and women who gave their lives to fight for this country. This includes the over 5,000 men and women who have died in Iraq and Afghanistan since 2001. Even in difficult economic times, this is by far the most devastating cost of all, the lives we have lost in these two conflicts. Bogus conflicts. Iraq, a totally illegal war. And Afghanistan, a situation that has gone on forever because we don't know what we're doing there. We don't really know why we're doing there. We don't know what winning looks like, so we don't know how to get out. 
So says Jan, a representative Jan. This weekend, I hope all Americans will take the opportunity to consider the cost of ongoing war. We simply cannot afford to continue pouring American blood and treasure into conflicts that will never be solved by a total dependence on military force. We should look to the women to provide the cost-effective, powerful force for peace. Well, as we know, uh, the war in Afghanistan and Pakistan have now been kind of put together in one acronym. It's now the AFPAC Theater. Scary. Very scary. So we here at Radio Frias have created the Mexeriz. The Mexican Arizona border isn't oh, that? That's another one. Mexeriz. Yes, Mexeriz. Well, right. here, here's, Mexeriz. here's some. Here's let's. Here's two or three stories about Mexeriz. We're okay? on the Mexeriz. Now, All right. Uh, the city of Tucson has joined a lawsuit by one of its police officers to block Arizona's immigration enforcement law. The suit was filed uh, in late April in the U.S. District Court in Tucson on behalf of Tucson police officer Martin Escobar. It alleges the new law violates numerous constitutional rights, could hinder some police investigations, and violates federal law because Tucson police in the city have no authority to perform immigration duties. Okay? How about that? Wow. Okay. Well, I think it's interesting when a city sues the state. You know, that's like your nose... (laughs) <laughs> suing your toes, you know. Your nose suing your toes. Very, uh, very, very good. And you, so that means the Tucson's giving the finger to basically Phoenix, or at least to Governor Brewer, right? Was well, certainly to Phoenix, and they always have. Yeah, they you have. know, a Phoenix. You know, let, let's put it this way: Arizona is a lot more interesting these days than it ever has been. Yeah, right. Okay, now, yeah. So you've got the Tucson police and Tucson City are 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 bringing them to court. The musicians are boycotting them. Okay, Kane West is among a group of artists who are refusing to play gigs in Arizona, protesting against recent uh, changes to the immigration law. The group called The Sound Strike is led by the rockers Rage Against the Machine and featuring Cypress Hill, Massive Attack, and System of a Down's Serge Tankian. Not familiar with his work. And they're boycotting the shows until SB 1070 is amended. That's the bad job. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a system of a down. Yeah. That's, yeah they're, they're, <laughs> Rage Against okay. Machines lead singer Zach De La Roca said, some of us grew up dealing with racial profiling, and this law takes it to a whole new low. Right? Take it to a whole new low. Writing on the group's website, uh, De La Roca described the situation as critical and concluded that we are not going to play in Arizona. We're going to boycott Arizona. If other states follow the direction of the Arizona government, we could be headed towards a pre-civil rights era reality. He's right. Oh, yeah. I mean, these guys... No, I think that's really smart, is not not to play the state, not to take your um, uh, big convention to Arizona. This is what's going to... First place, the the fiscal pain of losing the money and all of that, that's going to hurt. But all of those teenagers not paying their $35 to go see System of a Machine... Yeah, yeah, it's it's Rage Against Brewer. Rage Against... Yeah, they're going to be on That's it. You don't want to upset the Ute. Now, now Brewer... They vote. but, But Brewer... Brewer's enraged. Brewer's the ang- governor. Yeah, okay. Jan Brewer's enraged because she's angry about the dust-up over her comment that her father, quote, died fighting the, not- the Nazi regime in Germany. In an interview with the Arizona Guardian, Brewer said she never misled anybody, and she said she's fairly devastated by this. There is no way I have ever misled anybody. You're trying to make a liar out of me, Brewer told the Arizona Republic in a recent interview, that her father died fighting the Nazi regime in Germany. But according to the Guardian, Brewer's father, Wilford Drinkwine, it's his name, hmm. Wilfred Drinkwine, died of lung disease in California in 1955. A brewer spokesperson said that Drinkwine had inhaled toxic fumes 
while working during the war as a civilian supervisor for a naval munitions depot in Nevada. The spokesman said the fumes eventually killed him and that he was on full medical disability at the time of his death. Well, she said, sucking in those fumes, I mean. Yeah, yeah she go said, ahead. Yeah, she said, knowing that my father died fighting the Nazi regime uh, in Germany, and that's true, he, he did. He was doing some. Well, the Nazi regime was in Germany, Germany at right. the time. And he was not in uniform. Yeah. She said, she said knowing that my father fought, was died fighting the Nazi regime in Germany, that mm. I lose him when I was 11 because of that, and then to have them call me Hitler's daughter, it hurts. It's ugliness beyond anything I've ever experienced. She's not Hitler's daughter. She's not. She's Hitler's stepchild. Remember somebody wrote me that said uh, Radio Free Oz was too dire. Well, if you have a like low dire quotient, I want you to turn on NPR or some Muzak right now because this article from Bloomberg is like, it's upsetting, babes. BP's failure since April to plug that oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico has prompted forecasts that the crude may continue gushing into December in what President Barack Obama has called the greatest environmental disaster in U.S. history. Now, there's a Christmas present for the United States, a continuing gushing of oil. BP's attempts so far to cap the well and plug the leak on the seabed a mile below the surface haven't worked. While the start of the Atlantic hurricane season this week indicates storms in the Gulf may disrupt other efforts. Yes, I think so. 150-mile winds will have some effect on what's going on. The worst-case scenario is Christmas time, says Dan Pickering, the head of research at energy investor Tudor Pickering Holton Company in Houston. He said the process is teaching us to be skeptical of deadlines. Ending the year with a still-gushing well would mean about 4 million barrels of oil spilled into the Gulf, based on the government's current estimate of 12 to 19,000 barrels leaking a day. Of course, that's the low estimate. That would wipe out marine life deep in the sea, near the leak, and elsewhere in the Gulf, and among hundreds of miles of coastline, said Harry Roberts, a professor of coastal studies at Louisiana State University. These are experts talking, not harebrained wingnut bloggers. These people really know their stuff. So much crude pouring into the ocean may alter the chemistry of the sea with unforeseeable results, said Mark Sato, an associate scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts. BP, based in London, where many of them are hiding out at this moment, says it can't guarantee the success of its attempt now underway to capture the flow of oil and divert it to a ship at the surface. Thad Allen, the U.S. government's national commander for the incident, said operations may need to be suspended to allow for an evacuation ahead of a tropical storm or hurricane during which oil would continue to gush into the Gulf. The so-called relief well being drilled to intercept and plug the damage well by mid-August might miss, as other emergency wells have done before, requiring more time to make a second, third, or fourth try. This according to Dave Rensink, president-elect of the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. More experts lining up with tears in their eyes. They're all wearing black. We're in mourning. We're in ecological mourning. The ultimate worst-case scenario. Now, this is not the worst-case scenario. This is the ultimate worst-case scenario. It's kind of like a gamer's term. The ultimate worst-case scenario is that the well is never successfully plugged, said Fred Amenzadeh, a research fellow at the University of Southern California Center for Integrated Small Oil Fields, who previously worked for Unical Corp. That would leave the well to flow for probably more than a decade, he said in a telephone interview.
Ocean biologists are concerned that the oil could linger in deep layers in the sea, generating oxygen-depleted dead zones that kill marine life. Quote, clearly oxygen levels are going to be decreased in the vicinity of the plume area, and it looks like it could be a very large plume area, said Sato, the Woods Hole uh, oceanographer. The American Bird Conservancy has identified 10 key regions on the Gulf Coast where birds would be and could be harmed. If the oil uh, is spread widely by a hurricane, there could be long-term damage to bird populations. Quote, what is difficult to measure is the loss of future generation of birds when birds fail to lay eggs and when eggs fail to hatch, said George Fenwick, the organization's president. Marine life may take decades to recover, wiping out businesses along the coastline that depend on the fishing and seafood industry. Let's not forget the tourist industry. Al Sunsarai, who runs P&J Oyster Company, the oldest continually operated oyster dealer in the U.S., said he could end up out of business. This would be the end of our 134-year-old business, he said. I've been doing this for 30 years. I have a son, and I don't know if he'll be able to carry on in the next generation. My, oh, my. David, this is the article for which we earn our salary. Because, of course, salary comes from the word salt. You know, you're worth your salt. Oh, yes. Okay. Salt was a big deal. It's a big deal today. But the New York Times tells us that... With salt under attack for its ill effects on the nation's health, the food giant Cargill kicked off a campaign last November to spread its own message. Quote, salt is a pretty amazing compound. Alton Brown, a Food Network star, gushes in a Cargill video called Salt 101. So make sure you have plenty of salt in your kitchen at all times. The campaign by Cargill which both produces and uses. Keeps me from slipping on the floor. Yeah, right? it's also good for throwing my shoulder for good luck. That's and all, right. you know, all, all those that use, stuff, yeah. I, think, I don't know if it works Mice on vampires, but you never know. Mice don't like it, but go right ahead. Yeah, right. The campaign by Cargill, which both produces and uses salt, promotes salt as life-enhancing and suggests sprinkling it on foods as varied as chocolate cookies, fresh fruit, ice cream, and even coffee. Hmm. You might be surprised, Mr. Brown says, by what foods are enhanced by its briny kiss. Ho, 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 says Mr. Brown. It's briny kiss. It's briny kiss. Who writes his material? Probably himself. By all appearances, this is a moment of reckoning for salt because high blood pressure is rising among adults and children. Government health experts, they're estimating the deep cuts in salt consumption could save 150,000 lives a year. I'm sorry. The world's overcrowded anyway. Go go on. Go right. Processed foods account for most of the salt in the American diet, according to national health health officials. In fact, Mayor Richard Bloomberg of New York and Michelle Obama are urging food companies to greatly reduce their use of salt. Last month, the Institute of Medicine went further, urging the government to force companies to do so. Oh, the teabaggers. Oh, Oh, uh, government forcing. They're telling me I can't put salt on my pizza? Yeah. I put salt in my milk. Come on. I can't put more salt in my coffee? Well, that's a taste. I can't live with. Out. Out. But the industry is working overtly and behind the scenes to fend off these attacks using a shifting set of tactics that have defeated similar efforts for 30 years. I'm watching you, Cargill. Go ahead. Industry insiders call the strategy delay and divert. Uh-huh. Uh, are we using that somewhere else? Well, no, that's shock and awe. Oh, I remember, right, yeah. yeah. And they say companies have a powerful incentive to fight back. They crave salt as a low-cost way to create tastes and textures.
textures. Mm. I'm trying to do that with my voice right now. Right, tastes and textures. Doing without it risks losing customers and replacing it with more expensive ingredients risks losing profits. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. When health advocates first petitioned the federal government to regulate salt in 1978, food companies sponsored research aimed at casting doubt on the link between salt and hypertension. Can't do that anymore. Two decades later, when federal officials tried to cut the salt in products labeled healthy, mm-hmm. companies argued that foods already low in sugar and fat would not sell with less salt. Uh-huh. Now the industry is blaming consumers for resisting efforts to resu- to reduce the salt in all foods. Pointing to, as Kellogg put it in a letter to a federal nutrition advisory committee, the virtually intractable nature of the appetite for salt. So it's the salt addicts. It's the people with the salt jones out there that are keeping the fast food industry from taking the stuff out. This, this is good. Uh, well, yeah, because that's what the taste in all those foods is, after all. is It's all salt. I mean, look at the ingredients. It supplies 95% of the daily intake of salt. Yeah, well, okay. Okay. Even as it was moving from one line of defense to another, the processed food industry's own dependence on salt has deepened. Ooh. According to interview with company scientists. Oh, those are people I don't want to company go to dinner scientists, with. Uh-uh. Salt company scientists. Oh, no. Beyond its own taste, <laughs> salt also makes bitter flavors and counters a side effect of processed food production called warmed over flavor, which the Ugh. scientists said can make meat taste like cardboard or damp dog hair. Oh, well, I salt my damp dog hair before I consume it. So Absolutely. Uh, everybody on it. Doesn't everybody do that with I their damp dog? I encrust my damp dog hair with salt. <laughs> That's the only thing to do. Salt also works yeah. in tandem with fat and sugar to achieve flavors that grip the consumer and do not let go. Oh, uh-huh. And is allure. It? What they do is they grip the sides of the arteries <laughs> yes. and never let go. This is an allure the industry has recognized for decades. Quote, once a, prefer- once a preference is acquired, a top scientist at Frito-Lay wrote in a mm. 1979 internal memorandum, uh-huh. most people do not change it, but simply obey it. They obey it. Obey oh. the Salt Jones. In, in recent months, food companies, including Kellogg, have said they were redoubling efforts to reduce salt, but they say they can go only so far, so fast, without compromising taste consumers have come to relish or salt's ability to preserve food. We have to earn the consumer's trust every day, said George Doughty, a senior vice president of Campbell Soup. And if you disappoint the consumer, there is no guarantee they will come back. Now, Campbell's makes so many different kinds of soup. Like yeah. it's 300 feet of soup in the store. It stretches on. White and red, red and white. It goes on and on and on. There's a salt. There's a salt-free everything, no. along with a increased salt and, and manly and, salt and, and low salt <laughs> and wussy salt. <laughs> all right? those compromises. They've all already done that. I mean, do you know by the way that uh, Campbell Soup is the largest purchaser of wine? in the country, that there's wine in almost all their soups. Yeah, but you have to salt it. Yeah, right. Okay, here's case study. Okay. The Cheez-It. Ready? Okay, the Cheez-It. The power that salt holds over processed foods can be seen in an American snack icon, the Cheez-It. At the company's laboratories in Battle Creek, Michigan, a Kellogg vice president and food scientist, John Keplinger, ticked off the way salt makes its little square cracker work. I'd like to show you the way these little square crackers work here. I'm I'm sure you've all had a few of these before, but this is the way it works. Go right ahead. Oh, heck, man. I think John Keplinger is probably a little square cracker. (laughs) Wrong wrong accent, but go ahead. Salt sprinkled on top gives the tongue a quick buzz. (laughs) 
More salt in the cheese adds crunch. Still more in the dough blocks the tang that develops during fermentation. In all, a generous cup of Cheez-Its delivers one-third of the daily amount of sodium recommended for most Americans. That's it. One-third of a cup? No, a cup. Just a little cup of Cheez-Its. A cup of Cheez-Its. You grab your hand while you're watching, you know, uh, world wrestling. I would never do that, but go ahead. As a demonstration, Kellogg prepared some of its biggest sellers with most of the salt removed. Uh Uh-oh. The Cheez-It fell apart in surprising (laughs) ways. The golden yellow hue faded. I like this cheesy, but it looks a little bit faded. Now, I want to show you. That's without the salt. It's the faded one you see here. The crackers became sticky when chewed, and the mash packed onto the teeth. The taste was not merely bland, but medicinal. I got to say, if you can't spit it out and taste like medicine is a piece, excuse me, I got to leave. Quote, I really got the bitter on that, the company spokeswoman Jay Andere Putman said with a wince as she, as she watched Mr. Keplinger struggle to swallow. They moved on to cornflakes. Without salt, the cereal tasted metallic. The Eggo waffles evoked stale straw. The butter flavor in the Keebler light buttery crackers, which have no actual butter, simply disappeared. You mean the butter was all salt? Ain't that something? My gosh. Well, you know, it's, it's not anything like this in the pot business. spoke of death on some coast I saw the crumbling debris It dealt me a blow But I'm thankful to know That it could never happen to me I am standing on motionless land A constant under my feet God for walls and a roof overhead It could never happen to me I feel for the poor folks who wander the streets In search of their daughters and sons It's sad there are people with nothing to eat But I'm thankful I'll never be without flaws and I've suffered through loss I've got problems away on my mind I've got bills to pay 
and a sign on the way. So I've gotta save every So far from my door As if tragedy lives overseas I wish I could help But I'm glad for myself That it could never happen to me It could never happen to me So earlier in the program, I talked about the trillion dollars we've spent on the illegal war in Iraq and the much too long, much too ill-defined war in Afghanistan. Well, here's a question. What could we do with that trillion dollars instead of prosecuting those conflicts? Well, first, with a trillion dollars, we could provide a million music art teachers with a job for a year, and we could provide health care for one million children for one year and still have $925 billion left to spare. Oh, my golly. Well, what is the big issue? It's really not Afghanistan. It's really not the Taliban. It's really not the Shiites and the Sunnis. It's the fact that there are a vast number of Americans unemployed in a failing economy. But instead of leading on this jobs issue, Congress is delaying and dissembling about the cost while merrily spending trillions on war. The Senate just skipped town instead of staying in session long enough to pass an unemployment insurance extension. We must remember, everyone in Congress is employed. So, on June 1st, several programs, including extended unemployment benefits, expired. 19,400 people were permanently denied receiving checks, according to data from the Department of Labor. And soon, (laughs) the number of premature unemployment exhaustions will climb to 323,400. The week after that, 903,000. By the end of this month, 1.2 million people will be denied their unemployment checks. My, oh my. It will be the third time this year that lawmakers have allowed extended unemployment benefits to lapse, and the second time they've decided to leave town for reasons fully knowing the lapse will cause panic and confusion among blameless layoff victims, not to mention a huge administrative burden on state workforce agencies. But what do they care? They're going home, what, to attend the teabag parties, to rally for their candidates, to eat barbecue? They should eat their hearts out. This is a disaster. People are losing jobs or have already been unemployed long term. And while Congress is nickel and diming people who are suffering, those cost of war counters just keep spinning. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what else is spinning. It's our founding fathers and founding mothers. They're spinning in their graves. Maybe they didn't envision unemployment benefits, right? But they can't be happy as hardworking, out-of-work Americans suffer at the cost of a trillion ill-spent bucks. Well, Dave, it's powder into poultry time. Powder you know? into poultry? Yeah, this is from Time Magazine, okay. you know, which, which has become increasingly less serious, which means I like it all the more. All right. Do we really need to kill animals to live? 
Good question, right? Okay. And that includes human animals, I guess, but we won't get into that. Today, the hunger for meat is also contributing to the climate change catastrophe. We know that. The gases mm-hmm. from the chickens and the pigs and the cows and the manure lagoons. I love that. You know, yeah. It sounds almost like the new tourist trap after the oil completely spreads over the Gulf. Manure lagoons. Ah, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to a slippery slick manure lagoon. And, you know, you can always plant a few of those uh, 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 palm trees that are really uh, antennae, you know, that go up there. The Dubai palm the tree. Dubai palm tree, And, yeah. you know, you jump in the lagoon and you've got it. You come out with an instant tan, a dark tan. All right. So yeah. they're part of global warming. Okay. So the idea of fake meat has never been more alluring, they say. Well, what if you could cut into a juicy chicken breast that wasn't mm-hmm. chicken at all? but rather some indistinguishable imitation made harmlessly from plant life. Well, excuse me, Mr. Bergman, I have this piece of soya... Soya stuff here. It's white. Soya is not it's, enough. It's hold, not it, enough. hold it. Hold it. You, cut you make this. fun no. of this. You oh. make fun. Oh, okay. You, you're just one of those guys that doesn't want to cut into some indistinguishable <laughs> imitation a piece of something made harmlessly you're, from something you're else. You're damn right, Mr. Bergman. All right. Well, go ahead. Scientists recently at the University of Missouri announced that after more than a decade of research, they have created the first soy product that not only can be flavored to taste like chicken, but also breaks apart in your mouth the way chicken does. Not too soft. Not too hard but with that ineffable chew of real flesh. <laughs> the Hannibal yeah, Lecter wait chicken. Wait a minute. Is, <laughs> that, is that a quarter you've been, you've been writing in your sleep no, again? No, I've been writhing in my sleep. Every day. All right, so when you pull the product apart, yeah. the Missouri invention, yeah. it disjoints the way chicken does with a few random strands of, in quotes, meat hanging loosely. This <laughs> now, took a decade a of research on these bozos in Missouri. I see how they got the meat, but you're disjointing it. So what about the bones? You mean there are bones inside this fake meat? I, I have think this, about that. I have this piece of white soya, Mr. Bergman. It has no bones in it. Well, that, they, they were, I don't need to break it We're going to press... Uh, let me move okay, on. Okay, please. Stop deconstructing something that's already so ridiculous. <laughs> the vegetarian world, they say, is buzzing about the breakthrough in Missouri, along with ham, Chicken has always been the holy grail, says Seth Tibbet, uh-huh. 59, the creator of Tofurky and the dean of soy meat inventors. <laughs> there he is like, on his t- tombstone, dean of soy meat inventors. Tibbet's Oregon Charlie based. Charlie Tofurky, <clears throat> 1927. Go ahead. Tibbet's Oregon based Turtle Island Foods has become famous for its surprisingly full flavored fake turkey. Oh, wait, stop right there. I've had it. It's not full flavored. Unless someone has run over your taste buds with a biodiesel Mercedes. Okay, I just, I just want to put that in there, okay? All right, here. Americans spend something like half a trillion dollars on real meat every year. That's um, what it costs at my market, I'll tell you. Yeah, right. You live on this island, you, you can spend that in a, in a week. Wow, that's just meat where you try to eat some fish. Okay, go ahead. A, a meaty-tasting alternative that could capture even a tenth of this market would make someone very rich. Yeah, PepsiCo. Yeah. The University of Missouri team may have finally cracked the code. Well, okay. For, now, for several years, Fu Hung Xiet a biological engineering professor who at his previous job at Quaker figured out how to use glycerin to soften the raisins in the company's <laughs> granola has wondered how to solve the fake chicken problem. Now, does Fu Hung have any idea what the extra glycerin will do to me? I might be better off with hard raisins, right? Fu, really? Fu, I sure. Brave. Sure. Fu is obviously a member of the just do it generation, right? You know, excessive glycerin hardens your testicles, let's say. But the raisins are soft. The raisins are soft. Okay, so we're fine. We're doing fine. Raisin detra. Right, Go so, ahead. Yeah. So here comes the answer. 
Yep. The answer was certainly going to be a combination <laughs> of soy, <laughs> wheat, gluten, oil, and water. I yummy, hope yummy. so. I hope so. But how to transform from a congealed goo into a believable, believable simulacrum of chicken? Now, that's <laughs> the trillion-dollar question, right? <laughs> See, it's all about the texture. Uh-huh. Before an animal is killed, its flesh essentially marinates for all the years that the animal lives in the rich biological stew that uh, that we call blood. It's a it's a fecund bath. Oh, the the, the writing in time is really going. Oh, over this the is wall. a fecund bath. Fecund bath of oxygen, hormones, sugars, and plasma. Yum yum. Vegan foods like tofu and, and tempeh mm-hmm. uh, don't have the benefit of sloshing around in something so complex no as blood. blood before they go. Uh, no, you, do you mean to tell me that the soy cakes I get at the local nature pit have not been sloshed around in blood? They, I'm going to talk. They're to blood them. free. They're yeah. he, hemo, uh, a hemoglobin. Yeah, right, right. Hemoglobin with a great big line. There for you it. go. So how do you create fleshy, muscly texture without blood? I hope we're going to find out. First, you. Certainly not me. No, Take not, a dry yeah, mixture right. of soy it's protein. It's you. It's you. It's you. It's you, not me. Because I'm okay. You take a dry mixture of soy protein powder and wheat flour, add water, and dump it into an industrial extruder. <laughs> At first, the mixture looks like cat bladder, cake batter. <laughs> cake bladder. Cake cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. But, but as heated to precisely 346 degrees, the batter firms up and forms complex styrations. I guess you'd call them chicken-like styrations. Uh-huh. Public health types have long yearned for a credible soy meat because soy is a great source of protein. So this is a very specific temperature. You cook this mixture of vegetation. At. Yeah, right. You cook it exactly. So, I mean, double, and, and double everybody's double been looking forward to it. Trouble. It's, it. It's what they want. You know, it's like... But no, the, no. Wait a minute. Yeah. It's not what anybody wants. But go ahead. <laughs> well, people, people for... The Ethical Treatment of Animals, uh-huh. PETA, have offered a $1 million prize to anyone who can bring in vitro chicken meat to market. These people are insane. I yeah, just thought uh, they didn't want people to eat fur. Yeah. Now, I would risk less if I offered a similar prize for anyone who identified a member of PETA with a sense of humor. Okay? <laughs> You're going to go for bets here. So maybe one day you'll order a chicken fajita at Chili's that is made with soy. You almost certainly won't notice the difference, but the planet will. Isn't that sweet? Wow. And this is this hasn't been assigned to a giant agricorp yet. Though, Not huh? yet, but it's looming on the horizon. So we may have this oil spill till Christmas or for 10 years. Or forever. Well, some people say, where is it? I don't see it. You know, they think of an oil spill and they picture a black tide engulfing beaches and drowning shorebirds and sea turtles in crude. Well, certainly these are the images from the Exxon Valdez accident, which spilled like 11 million gallons of oil into Alaska's Prince William Sound in 1989. The oil escape from the tanker eventually coated 1,300 miles of pristine Alaskan coastline and covered 11,000 square miles of ocean in an inky slick. The Valdez disaster was the biggest spill in American history, until now. Since April 20th, when the Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded, killing 11 people, and triggered an underwater well blowout, at least 20 million barrels of crude, and counting, have poured into the Gulf of Mexico. And yet, where is all the oil, Daddy? I mean, where is the disaster? This is what makes the Gulf of Mexico spill so much more insidious than that of the Valdez in Alaska, and potentially much more destructive. The oil leaking from the broken well at the bottom of the ocean is everywhere, but nowhere you can see. 
When a tanker spills the entirety of its contents on the surface of the ocean at once, creating an avalanche of crude, an immediate and horrific photographic images immediately appear. The Gulf spill gushes continuously out of sight, you know, almost a mile below the ocean's surface. The busted well is a fountain that the Obama administration recently admitted could flow uninterrupted until August. And just might, and just might flow longer. Think of it less as an acute trauma than a chronic progressive disease that doctors can diagnose but cannot cure. So, where is the oil hiding? Scientists say some of it is spreading underwater in plumes that extend thousands of feet below the surface. But BP CEO Tony Hayward, let's get ready for Tony, well, he disputes those claims because he's such an expert. He says, the oil is on the surface. Hayward said while touring a staging area for cleanup workers in Louisiana, he said there was, I'm going to make it more English, he said there was no evidence that enormous reservoirs of oil were suspended undersea. I think I made him a bit too Australian there. However, two independent university research teams from the University of South Florida and the University of Georgia have reported direct evidence of underwater oil. Samantha Joy, a marine scientist at the University of Georgia, has been aboard the university's ongoing research voyage in the Gulf, so says Time magazine, and reported that the team could see oil in water samples collected from 1,000 feet below the surface. But seeing is exactly what will be hard to do with the Gulf spill. Now and in the months ahead, the oil underwater will do untold amounts of damage, even if it is invisible. Quote, it's out of sight and out of mind, but it will have a huge effect on the marine life that oscillates in that zone, said Doug Rader, the chief ocean scientist for the EDF. You can't see it. But it's there. I like that, that metaphor. It's a disease, a chronic disease that we can diagnose, but we can't cure. The show is cold. Oh, when you stood me up. Sure is cold You put my head on the chopping block Yeah Sure is cold Yeah Sure is cold, baby You're not coming home Sure is cold Shore is cold. Oh Lord, he's sleeping all alone. Ain't nobody calling me on the phone. Can't find no work. Looked all over this place. Down my face 
everything I own I'm carrying on my back Oh, I got a bedroom and a dirty knapsack I don't know where I'm going, I only know where I've been Here's another entry in the Wingnut Journal. Senator Jake Knotts, a top supporter of South Carolina Governor candidate Andre Bauer, called frontrunner Nikki Haley, who is the child of Sikh immigrants from the Punjab, an effing raghead. He also went on a tear about her being a crypto-Sikh, pretending to be Christian and part of some wild conspiracy theory about Haley being a stalking horse for turban-wearing foreigners trying to undermine South Carolina's God-fearing culture. Not said that South Carolina is a religious community. We need a good Christian to be our governor, he said. She's hiding her religion. She ought to be proud of it. I'm proud of my God. Doesn't pride come before a downfall, or at least a downturn? Not says he believes Haley's father has been sending letters to India, saying that Haley is the first Sikh running for high office in America. He says her father walks around Lexington wearing a turban. Ah, oh, that should put him away for that. Send him back to Pakistan or whatever stand he came from. We're at war over here, Not said. Asked to clarify, said he did not mean the United States was at war with India, but was at war with foreign countries. There's really nothing more I have to say about this. Well, Peter, there was an op-ed in the New York Times. I always like to take a look at them because sometimes there are some really weird people who, who write. It's not their regular op-ed columnist, and this time it was Richard V. Allen. Well, wasn't he uh, Reagan's national security advisor? You got it. From uh, 1981 to 82, this was not a guy who lasted a long time, but he's full of memories. Yeah. So after the uh, the recent uh, Israeli raid on the Turkish ship, you know, and the crisis is me, crisis mode, crisis mode. So he's remembering a uh, a thing that happened when the Israelis uh, uh, bombed the n- nuclear reactor in, in Iraq. Iraq some during these years that he was with yes. Reagan. So he calls up. To, he's, he hears the news. He gets it on the hotline, and he tries to get the president on the hotline. And you know, the guy says, "I'm sorry, Mr. President. The president is already on the uh, on the helicopter." Uh, when Richard Allen says, "Well, get him off," and he says, uh, "He doesn't like to do that, sir." He says, get him off. This is an emergency. So, you know, minutes pass, and he comes on, and uh, we'll pick up the story here. In what seemed like an eternity, but was only two minutes or so, President Reagan was on the line, a slight note of irritation in his voice. Yes, Dick, and what is it? I quickly recited what happened, and he asked me to repeat the message. Okay, you with me so far? Yep. After pausing a few seconds, mm -hmm, he asked, why do you suppose they did that? 
My answer was something to the effect that the Israelis clearly did not want that reactor to become operational. He went silent, and the phone line again filled with the churning of the copter. With characteristic aplomb, he suddenly asked, Well, you know what? I said, What, Mr. President? His retort was classic. Boys will be boys. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know what just comes to mind? That with Richard Nixon, who became a uh, schizophrenic, right? And with uh, Reagan, who became an Alzheimer patient. And with George W. Bush, who's a total idiot. We have had years and years and years of crummy... Unacceptable presidents. A crummy and unacceptable. Well, listen to this. So, so, they, so they go after this. If that weren't enough, imagine yourself to be a part of this high, high senior uh, uh, Oval Office meeting, okay? Oh, good, good. good. The me. vigorous discussion provided some surprises, including the opinions presented by Vice President George H.W. Bush, the Chief of Staff James Baker, and the President's omnipresent aide, Michael Deaver. They argued strongly for punitive action against Israel, including taking back aircraft and slapping their hands and, and delaying or canceling scheduled deliveries. There also came the unexpected news that several important Middle East countries, while publicly professing outrage and dismay, we were we really liked that they hit those because he was well, very dangerous. You know, he's Saudi Arabia, you know, yeah. who else? Okay, here's who else is in the room. Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger. Yeah. He was angry. Yeah, oh. But measured. While Secretary of State Alexander Haig uh, um, uh, carefully presented the diplomatic concerns. I'm taking over the White House. I am in control. You know why Casper Weinberger was mad? Because he had the first name Casper. <laughs> He's really pissed at his parents. <clears throat> Let's see who else was there. Uh, the uh, um, Haig was inclined to stand by Israel, but great. How can you be inclined and stand well, at the same time? Well, that's Alexander Haig for you. Yeah. But great pressure from within the State Department, from other countries, prompted him to be less vocal and ultimately to authorize American uh, officials to uh, have an official criticism of Israel. Then the room isn't empty yet. The CIA director William J. Casey. Yeah. was circumspect. He was asleep. Please. Circumspect. I, I didn't know he was Jewish. Like Haig, he understood the president's views well. Uh, boys, <laughs> boys will be boys. <laughs> boys. I get that one. <laughs> the president himself said little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listening patiently. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, <laughs> the session concluded. I lingered behind. The president looked up from the papers on his desk. Well, what did you think of that? I mean, we have no assertive, not one assertion of anything from the president what? so far. Right. Uh, well, what did you think of that? He asked, and I suggested that he had basically heard all points of view and that I had heard his comment the day before. The one about boys will be boys. He smiled and returned to the papers on his desk. By the end of the year, the United States and Israel had signed a strategic cooperation agreement. That's just chilling. Is that Chilling, or is that just Washington? David, I was uh, leaving through Mick newspaper, and I uh, came up with this quiz for you. Because oh, I, a quiz. Because, I, yes, I so, really want to know what you look for in a politician, okay? All right, I'm willing. I'm, uh, I'm which open. of the following characteristics of Tea Party favorite candidate Tim D'Annunzio of North Carolina mm -hmm. would throw you off or inspire your vote. Okay. okay. One. These are all his real characteristics. This is all real. This okay. Is, you know, which right. of these characteristics, which 
and or, right, uh-huh. which would make you support the guy or, or throw your support to somebody else. Okay, Here I'm, ready. I'm One, ready. that he claimed to be the Messiah and traveled to New Jersey to raise his stepfather from the dead. Well, go on. Number two. Yeah. Believed God would drop a thousand-mile-high pyramid as the New Jerusalem on Greenland. <laughs> well, uh, there's something to that, I guess. I mean, there's one on the dollar bill. Go ahead. No, but that's pro-development. Yes, you it know, is. It is. And know, after all, Greenland will be ice-free pretty soon. Pretty, so. you know, I may, and I think, New, I think North Carolina <laughs> is going to be uh, denunzio-free fairly soon, yeah, come too. On, come on. Number three, yeah. claim to have found the Ark of the Covenant in Arizona. <laughs> good, good as any other state. <laughs> he's, I mean, if you're going to find it anywhere, you're going to find it in that wingnut state. But first of all, so, okay, he's the Messiah, and he went to New Jersey to raise his stepfather from the dead. He believes God would drop a thousand-mile-high pyramid as the New Jerusalem on Greenland, probably a zoning problem. Found the Ark of the Covenant in Arizona, smokes dope daily, and was treated for heroin dependence. Uh-huh. And refuses to play child support, and according to the judge in that case, called himself a religious zealot who believed that the government was the Antichrist. So those are your five. Dave. What do you think? Uh, You're going to go with this guy? Well, let's see. I, I these, uh, What state am I voting in? Uh, a, a state of abject terror, I, I would imagine. I, I wondered what it was. I've been hiding ever since you started. Well, gosh, I, you know, I, I have to say that uh, the part about you know raising his father from the dead. I, no, no, not his father. No, no, no that's sacrilegious. His no. stepfather. His stepfather. Oh, my God. Raising. Oh, well, that's completely different. Otherwise, it's incest. That's Radio Free Oz here. The Oz team that makes it possible. Your co-host David Osmond, John Cumming, our ones and zeros guru, Phil Fountain. Oh, he makes it all so pretty. Tom Gedwillow is our webmaster. Chaz Glass has joined the team. He's doing the financials. Dave Maloney is our superb audio engineer. Bill McIntyre produces the whole thing. And Scott Wilde, great Scott. He's our social media guru. Catch you on the next side.